From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Nicknamed The Rock, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary was a maximum security federal prison located on an island off the coast of San Francisco, California. The site of a military fort since the 1850s, it was eventually converted into first a military prison in the early 1900s and then a federal prison in the 1930s. Alcatraz was supposed to be the first escape-proof prison designed to curb the wave of crime of the 1920s and 30s. The prison was designed to house the worst of the worst, and over its history was home to infamous criminals such as Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, and Mickey Cohen. The island prison was reinforced with four strategic guard towers, cells with toolproof steel cell fronts, locking devices from control boxes, and iron grills that covered the windows. Guards were required to do routine checks of bars, doors, locks, electrical fixtures, and other physical security. Prisoners were counted 13 times daily, and at the end of each 20-minute meal, guards would count the number of forks, spoons, and knives to ensure that none were missing. Alcatraz was run as tight as a ship could be run, and if somehow you were able to escape all of that, you still had to contend with the turbulent and frigid waters of the bay where you would likely drown or freeze to death long before you made it to shore. So what then happened to the three men who, through one of the most elaborate and clever escapes, managed to make it off the island? Were John and Clarence Anglin and Frank Morris able to make it to shore and evade capture for the rest of their natural lives? Or did they perish in the attempt? This week, I welcome returning guest author Tom Sullivan, who just released a book on the story of this infamous escape, called Unsolved Case Files, Jailbreak at Alcatraz, on this week's mystery, Escape from Alcatraz, on From the Void. All right, Tom Sullivan, thank you so much for coming back on and uh, coming to talk to us about yet again another really interesting topic. Yeah, I'm I'm psyched to be here, and uh, you know it's such a crazy story, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, so so talk a little bit about the history first, because I think that that kind of sets up the story to be as kind of wild as it is. So talk a little bit about the the history of this very unique prison on an island. Yeah, so Alcatraz in general, you know, it's this kind of unwanted barren island that's sitting out in San Francisco Bay and nobody really knows what to do with it. Like some people own it and it's, it's essentially kind of worthless. Um, eventually though, the U S government takes control of it through eminent domain and, um, decide to use it as a fort. So it starts out as this fort in the, uh, civil war. And then it becomes like this, well, it's barracks, and then it's a POW camp for the Civil War, and then it's kind of like, uh, it's not like a military prison, but it, it kind of is for like, um, you know, uh, like low-level military offenders. 
And that's kind of like its early life for a while. But then um, come around Prohibition and with the rise of the gangster in America, like all of a sudden, like these, these guys are just like too much for the federal government to handle. Like people like Al Capone go to jail in Philadelphia or Atlanta and it's basically like they're like not even in jail at all. You know, like the guards are afraid of them and so they're, you know, giving them whatever they want. Al Capone had one jail cell that he had like... Um, you know, like a real bed and a nice, like, leather chair in. So it really wasn't prison for these guys. So, uh, you know, the government um, gets this idea, and they hire the, the warden, and he creates what is, you know, Alcatraz prison. And it's basically just this escape-proof, or at least rumored to be escape-proof, home for America's worst offenders. Yeah, so it's this, it's this crazy, like, the, the epitome of maximum security prison and, you know, reinforced iron bars. And, and I, I think I read, like, a dozen checks on the prisoners per day. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned Al Capone, but, but this prison really was, uh, uh, at this point anyway, uh, in the 1960s, by the time this, this escape takes place, is a place for a lot of people who were kind of infamous for escaping from other prisons. So talk a little bit about, there's, there's really four characters involved in the story but three of them are are successful in escaping uh, at least to our knowledge so talk a little bit about their history their background and kind of why they were there at the time yeah so uh frank morris has basically been escaping from jail like his whole life like this guy um was a runaway and he first got in trouble as a teenager in west virginia and he would you know run away from the the work camps and juvenile halls until it gradually got into running away and escaping from prisons and, and then, you know, state prisons and then federal prisons. And, and he works his way up until finally they're, they're just kind of fed up and just toss him into Alcatraz. It's like, finish your sentence here because hopefully you can't escape from this prison. And the Anglins, uh, similarly, they, they had like kind of one botched escape attempt. They weren't like habitual offenders like Morris was. But they were troublemakers in, in the prison system. Um, and then same with Alan West. He had also uh, attempted to escape. Um, coincidentally, he was with Frank Morris in Atlanta before they were in Alcatraz. Um, but nothing as complicated as this Alcatraz escape. Like, you know, for instance, the Anglins, uh, one of them snuck in a bread box and the other one kind of tried to push it onto a truck at the last second. And Alan West somehow got his hand on a gun and tried to, you know, force his way out of the jail before getting caught. Um, so what transpired on Alcatraz, when the four of these guys got together and the plan that they concocted, it, it became, I mean, it's surreal. It's like something uh, you'd like to say like out of a movie, but it's like even more complex than that when you think about it. Yeah, it's it. Once you look at the details, and, and in fact, if you go to the FBI's website, there's a you know a fairly decent you know breakdown of all the different things that they needed to achieve uh, in order to accomplish this feat. It's it's really remarkable. Uh, so, talk a little bit about that. So, thir- I think the record is like 36 men tried on 14 different attempts to escape, and nearly all were caught or died in the attempt. Uh, but the fate of these three in particular, we, we still to this day don't know, you know, if they were successful or not. That's kind of the big mystery. But talk a little bit about uh, when when they first got together and decided to plan this escape. Uh, walk us through, like, just how 
detailed uh, this this plan was and all the different things that they needed to accomplish in order to even make it off the island in the first place. Yeah, you know, it was it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven, you know, where you need like 30 things to happen perfectly in order for this plan to go off. And so uh, it, it starts very small. Like they, Alan West has a work detail painting the ceiling in this area above the, so the, the cells were in three tiers. And then there was this kind of space up, up above the third cell before the ceiling that like, it's kind of like an open attic. Like there were bars, but no walls. Um, so he's up there painting the ceiling and notices that one of the old ceiling vents didn't get cemented shut like some of the others did. So he can look up and feel the air. So it's like, okay, we can theoretically, if I could ever get through this hole, I could, you know, get onto the roof. And then from the roof, he discovered that there was a vent coming from, I believe it was the bakery that went all the way down to the ground. So it's like, okay, if I get to the roof, I can get down this pipe down to the ground. And then I can hop over these two fences and then it's just the ocean after that. Um, But they needed to solve the problem of how to get out of their cells. So that started small. Um, Frank Morris used a nail file. And one of the Anglin brothers was using a spoon. And each of the cells had this 6 by 10 inch metal grate uh, that was just an air vent um, leading into a hallway between two cells that was just kind of like maybe like three feet wide or so, maybe a little wider, but, um, you know, just kind of like like a service hallway. And they figured out that they could scratch through this concrete because the concrete over time had actually deteriorated due to the salt water that was in the plumbing in the building. So in order to save money, they used just seawater in their plumbing, and it was just slowly over time eroding the concrete um, because the rebar that was in the concrete would expand and contract as it rusted, and uh, that would you know cause the concrete to crumble. So it was like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen like old, old concrete, but sometimes you can touch it and it's almost like it like turns to sand in your hand. Um, so they're scraping and carving their way out of these vents. Um, and then once they get through the vent, uh, they, they figure out, okay, they use pipes to climb up to the third floor on top of the third floor cell to get to that ceiling area. And then in order to work up there on the vent, they needed to make sure, because like you said, they were, they were checked on. Uh, some reports, it's like 11, 12, 20, um, you know, they're getting checked on almost every, every couple hours. So in order to, uh, you know, kind of fool the guards, they came up with this genius idea to make these paper mache heads that they would put in their bunk at night while they went upstairs to work. And they always just kind of worked in like, like ones or twos. Like never, there was never like all four of them up on the, uh, the roof at once. So some men would keep watch while others worked. And um, in addition to the dummy heads, they also used the paper mache to create these kind of fake walls to, to put over the vent after they had dug it out. Wow, it's, it's just brilliant, the, uh, the links to which they, in the detail, uh, that you, you think it's kind of like that age-old thing where, like, man, these guys had put, put this much effort towards some sort of career, you know, maybe they would have actually thrived in society, you know? Exactly. Um, which is funny, yeah, Frank Morris was actually a, technically a genius. 
I, I, I love the part though about you know how they learned how to vulcanize rubber. So you know they I, I think I read somewhere they stole like something like fifty uh, raincoats to 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 turn into a raft, and they used steam from the steam pipes to vulcanize the rubber. And they read about it in a magazine while in prison. Yeah, it's it's so they read about it in a magazine while in uh, incredible, right? Yeah, like so you have nothing but time on your hands in prison. And so they would read these articles in Popular Mechanics. Um, they used issues of Sports Illustrated to learn about boating and water safety. And um, those were the same magazines that they used to make this paper mache too. And they found out that if they used the razor blades that they could get um, from their uh, shaving razors, they could slice out the pages with ads and nobody in the library would be the wiser. Like, if they cut out an article, someone else might check this magazine out and say, hey, what's the deal? You know, I, I wanted to read about whatever, uh, the newest car coming out this year. And, um, yeah, like, learned how to... So the vulcanizing rubber came from an article that was about a guy who built his own decoy ducks for duck hunting because the wooden ones were too clunky. And he didn't like having to carry around these wooden ducks. So he created these rubber ducks. And so the article goes into this great detail about how to work the rubber and how to, you know, treat it. And then once you vulcanize it, it's, it's pretty hard. And so, like you said, they used, yeah, around like 50 stolen raincoats, um, to create life vests and two rafts, which is just insane. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely insane. Uh, some of the other things that were pretty remarkable that I read about, um, the, you know, building their own wooden paddles, uh, converting a, a musical instrument into um, a pump, essentially, for the raft. Uh, some of these things are just pretty ingenious. Yeah, one of the ones, you know, that was like really like a, a stroke of brilliance, it just didn't end up working. It was part of their trial and error was they, they built a drill out of um, a vacuum cleaner motor. So one of the men was working a detail and his job was cleaning something and he had this vacuum and it was broken and he recommended that Frank Morris take a look at it because he was a smart mechanical guy and they figured out, okay, this, this vacuum actually has two motors. So if we fix one and remove one, they'll never know the wiser because if they open the vacuum, it, it's like if I opened up a vacuum, I don't really know what I'm looking at. <laughs> Um, and they used the motor of this vacuum to create a drill to try and um, cut through the bolts that were on the ceiling vent. Now, it didn't actually end up working, and they discarded it, but it was still like this prison ingenuity, you know, like to turn a vacuum cleaner, a broken vacuum cleaner motor into a functioning drill bit, which was just beyond brilliant. Um, They were brazing metal, (laughs) <laughs> which is another kind of just eureka moment. They, uh, Frank Morris was shaving his dimes into silver fragments because up until 64, dimes had silver in them. And he fused uh, his nail file to the handle of a spoon to create like a better pick for when he was carving through the wall. Um, yeah, the wood, they had just kind of smuggled wood from their various jobs. Um, one of them was detailing in like a, they had a, a broom shop like where they made brooms. So there was readily available scrap wood and uh, glue and you know stuff like that that they could use. 
Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's incredibly impressive. And, and for, for people listening, there's, there's, uh, pictures of some of the recovered items, uh, that they used in, in their escape. So speaking of the escape, so walk people through, you know, how, how do they uh, assume, you know, cause they kind of piece things together. So walk people through the actual escape and how, you know, from, from the jail cell to, to the shoreline. Yeah. Okay. So it is, uh, summer or just about to be summer in San Francisco. So it's probably about as warm as you're going to get because the, the big problem with that escape is that that water is so frigid basically year round. Um, there were other, you know, escape attempts where the, the people that had failed, like some people had only made it like a hundred feet offshore and either gave up or clung to a rock hoping to get rescued because they just couldn't handle the water. Um, so you had to wait until it was summer. Um, and, uh, Frank Morris one night, it it wasn't really like we're going to go on this night. It was kind of like, as soon as that last bolt had been, uh, sawed through or filed through and they could get up to the roof. It was like, let's go now because you never know something could happen tomorrow. And then the jig is up. And with these guys facing these, either life sentences or 20 years or whatever. It was kind of like a now or never sort of situation. So, uh, the night of the escape, Frank Morris makes his way through his, uh, vent hole, climbs up to the ceiling, cuts the last bolt, says, okay, this is it. So he brings the dummy heads back down and they put the dummy heads in their, in their beds. Um, except for Alan West. So Alan West is the reason that we actually know all of this because he hadn't fully um, filed or carved his way out of his jail cell yet because his cell was on the end. He mainly kind of kept watch, and he assembled some of the oars for the raft, but he had never actually left his cell like the other three had. So up until that night, they didn't realize that there was um, like another piece of support metal or something in the wall, and he was just... They they kicked it, they kind of clawed at it, and it was a no-go. So they had no choice but to leave West behind. Um, so the other three men, the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris, climb up to the roof. They get the raft, the oars, uh, the concertina, which is a small accordion that they had turned into an air pump. And they climb up to the roof, and the the ventilator shaft crashes to the roof with this bang and it sends like hundreds of seagulls out squawking and fluttering and prisoners uh, have all said that oh yeah you know like they knew they didn't know what was happening at the time but they all remembered that sound at like 10 o'clock at night or 10 30 or whatever it was um so then morris and the anglins get down to the ground level scale two fences and make their way down to the shore have enough time to inflate this raft, which I mean, that couldn't have been quick. <laughs> um, because that raft was something like 14 by six feet triangular shape, um, like a pontoon style. And, um, and then they push off into the water and they're never seen again. Yeah. And that's where the real mystery, uh, you know, there's, there's been a movie made about it. That's pretty famous. I, I believe, um, uh, shoot, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, I believe, is in it. Uh, that was really interesting. That kind of uh, alludes to the fact that they got away. But uh, tell folks, like, 
obviously the the FBI becomes involved pretty quickly after this happens. The Coast Guard. Uh, what evidence did they find if they found anything at all? So yeah, the evidence started to to trickle in kind of right away because um, you know you're you're at Alcatraz and then there's there's only so many places you can go. Um, so they found a raft, but that turned out to not be their raft. Um, but they did find the life vests. They found some oars um, over the, the course of a couple days. Um, and then they found this kind of packet um, that belonged to, I believe it was Clarence Anglin, that was wrapped in the same raincoat material that the raft was made from. And that contained phone numbers and photographs and just kind of personal artifacts. Um, and uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> Um, but yeah, but, but no, no body, nothing like that. Um, so these guys essentially vanished into thin, into thin air and, you know, that back at the prison, they, um, they start tossing cells and they're trying to find out who else was anybody else in on this plan. And there were a few other people that had, uh, started to cut their vents out, but bailed either because they were afraid of getting caught or they were asked to drop out or, or what have you. And Alan West kind of just comes clean and he, you know, I was in on it. Here's, here's how we did it. And you're never going to find them. Um, they're off to Mexico. And, um, what's really interesting is, you know, there, there can be arguments made to either their survival or their demise. Um, it's very, very possible that they died that night and that they drowned. Um, I don't know about Frank Morris's swimming ability, but I know that the Anglins were like accomplished swimmers. They grew up in Florida and, you know, spent a lot of their early life on the water. Um, so they, I think they would have had a fighting chance, but there was, um, a man that committed suicide that night off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he jumped in the water around nine 30 at night, about the time that these guys were entering the water. And even though, you know, multiple eyewitnesses saw where he entered the water, called the police and the Coast Guard right away. His body was never found. Um, and this was a person that they, you know, knew precisely where he entered the water and when he entered the water and were in the water looking for him within probably a couple hours. Um, there was a study done by the FBI based off of Golden Gate suicides because that is unfortunately like a pretty frequent thing. And over the course of two years, I, f- I forget the exact numbers. This was a detail that I had in an early draft of the book, and we decided that it was a little too gruesome for kids' books. <laughs> but um, over like you know the course of like thirty suicides, something like um, you know seventeen bodies were recovered, but thirteen were not. Thirteen of these bodies just vanished into the ocean which they could have been eaten by fish or sharks or scavengers that could have sunk. Wow. Um, there was also the case of, there was this Norwegian um, freight liner that uh, this was probably August, I think. Yeah. And they had seen um, a body floating maybe 20 miles off the coast of San Francisco and it had white pants. And that was kind of the only real detail. Um, and they didn't call the body in right away. They had to go to Australia or wherever they were going. And they didn't, they didn't call it in until they came back to San Francisco. So by then, the, the body was long gone. Um, but one of the theories is that 
possibly that was uh, the body of one of the prisoners. But uh, on the other hand, um, that could have been anybody, you know, theoretically. Uh, and with the odds of just a little over half of the bodies entering the water disappearing, who knows whose body that was. Um, now, the argument that they survived, uh, a detail that I found very interesting that often gets left out is the stolen blue Chevy. Um, so Alan West told the FBI that the plan was to make their way to Angel Island on the raft. And then they were supposed to slash the raft, slash the life vests, and sink them, which fits in line to why the FBI was finding this debris kind of, you know, near this island floating in the water. Um, they were, I think, a little too quick to jump to the conclusion that, oh, okay, that something happened. Uh, they sunk. They died. They drowned. Case closed. Um, then the plan was to go over to Marin County, to break into a department store to steal clothes, steal a car, and drive. And there was a blue Chevy reported stolen. And then uh, someone had actually called California Highway Patrol. I think this was a day or two later. um, And said that they were almost ran off the road by three guys driving a blue Chevy. And they never found the license plate. They never found this car. But there were other sightings across the country made public in the FBI's uh, kind of uh, freedom of information dump where they kind of let all these files out. And there are people saying, you know, someone who looks like Clarence Anglin in a, in a blue or a green Chevy was seen in, uh, I think it was Kansas. Um, so that's a big possibility, I think. And that's not even getting into the the photograph, which I don't know if we want to set that up first or if I should just go into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk, talk about that because that, that popped up on a TV show not too long ago where they did some analyzation of the likenesses of the two men. Yeah, and uh, talk about coincidence. Uh, so this guy, uh, I, f- I forget his name, but he's a, a drug smuggler, drug runner in the 70s doing a rundown to... Um, Brazil, and he happens to go into this bar outside of Rio de Janeiro and sees these two guys that he grew up with. So he goes over and talks to them, and it's, it's the Anglins, according to him. And he had grown up with them in Florida and um, known about the escape. Obviously, that was, you know, worldwide news. Um, and was just kind of shocked to see that, you know, they had made it all the way to Brazil and we're living on a farm, a very kind of like modest farm outside of Rio. And uh, so he takes a photograph, but then he doesn't really do anything with it for a while. And then in the 90s, he goes to the family. I, I believe this is uh, maybe on his deathbed. And he says that, uh, you know, they're alive and well, and they're in, they're in Brazil. And he has this photo that he gives to the family. And the History Channel had, working with, I believe, a retired U.S. Marshal, um, did some facial recognition uh, analysis. And although not conclusive, um, the, it was probable, there was a possibility that these were those two men. Yeah, that, that, was, that was fascinating to me. Um, you know, with the technology that we have now that we didn't have, obviously, even 10 years ago, uh, the ability to do some 
some analysis of, of photographs like that. The other interesting thing that uh, came to light a few years back also was this letter that the FBI received. Uh, talk about that a little bit. There's a gentleman claiming to be one of the Anglin brothers. So I, I, I didn't really pay too much attention to that because that was that could be uh, this happened with the DB Cooper book. There's this strange phenomenon where people on their deathbed just confess to crimes they didn't commit, and it's so bizarre to me um, why you would want to put your family through that. <laughs> like, oh, like uh, you know, Grandpa Joe, he could have been a serial killer, I guess, <laughs> but he might not have been either. Like, there's no evidence. Um, it's just so strange that these like false confessions. Or people just, I don't know, like it, they want their life to have meaning and that's what they grab at at the last second. Um, so there, there's no real validity to that letter um, that I know of. Uh, because by all accounts, I, I mean, you would have to assume at some point the Anglins and Morris split up and they probably have no way of contacting each other after that. So who knows what happens to Frank Morris? Um, but it looks like the, the Anglins make it to Brazil, possibly. So how would he know what Frank Morris is doing 30, 40, whatever years later, you know? Um, and there were, there have been sightings or reported sightings of, of all these guys all over the country. And that's another thing. I think sometimes people... People want to be a part of something big like that, like, you know, a, a fugitive hunt or something. So you call in these tips. And it, it happened uh, with Whitey Bulger, who was famously on the lam for, I don't know, 20-something years. And every once in a while, the FBI would get a tip, oh, he's in Ireland, he's in Florida, he's in, you know, Jamaica, wherever. Um, and it, it probably wasn't him because I think he was laying low in California in, like, a retirement uh, community. So yeah, it's just, it's very strange that, that people like to either confess to a crime they had nothing to do with, or to, to see someone that might even possibly look like a, a wanted person and call, call that in. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting because you know, he, he basically says in the letter, look, uh, if you promise me, I'll only spend one year in jail, but I can get the cancer treatment I need then I'll, I'll fess up and tell you all the, the details. But it sounds like, from what I can tell, the FBI really didn't take it too seriously, didn't really dig into it. A handwriting analysis was inconclusive. Uh, so it's just one of those things that, you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Yeah, yeah hard to say. <laughs> yeah, who knows? One of the great mysteries of this case. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So there, there were a few other strange things, too, that were reported from, from the family. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that they saw as p- perhaps signs that the, the brothers were still alive and well? Yeah, so the Anglins, um, their mother would get, uh, up until the day she died, um, a dozen roses on her birthday. And with just an, an un, an un uh, like a blank card. And then there were reports that two older women or men dressed as older women attended the funeral and then disappeared before, um, you know, anybody could talk to them. Kind of like how you see in a movie, you know, like the, the shadowy figure in the background under the umbrella watching the funeral from afar and then they're gone before anybody can talk to them. 
And it's just another one of those like little like stingers to this case that that leaves the possibility that they did in fact make it out and that they you know wanted to attend their mother's funeral as anybody would. But we're also smart enough to probably not trust their family <laughs> and let them know that they were there. Yeah, it's it's just another little wrinkle in, in this mystery that makes it so intriguing. So, um before we before we end, uh, talk about uh, talk about the book, where people can find it, and and what's your personal feeling after doing all of this research? Do you think the Anglin brothers uh, at le- at the very least survived? Oh, totally, definitely. I, I I think so. I think they had such a good chance. They had such a head start. Um, you know that it's less than a mile, or it's a little bit more than a mile from Alcatraz to Angel Island. So two experienced guys out there on the water. Um, they probably could have got made it to Angel Island by 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And then they're not discovered missing until 7 o'clock the next morning. So that's like a full evening in order for you to get out of Dodge. Um, and, and then there are, you know, the, the, there were... Um, I think there were some bones found at some point, but then uh, they eventually did do a DNA test and that was uh, determined to not be either Anglin or Frank Morris. So the mystery is what happened to Frank Morris, but I I think the Anglins did in fact make it down to Brazil. And so the book is called uh, Jailbreak at Alcatraz. It's the second installment in my Unsolved Case Files series, and you can find it wherever books are sold on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or your local independent. Awesome. Thank Tom. Thanks so much for coming back again. It's always a pleasure. Uh, we'll have to have you back on when, when you get the next, uh, next book in the series written. Um, always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks again. This is such a blast. Uh, the next book I'm actually working on now is about the, uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist, which happened in the nineties. Oh, very cool. Well, I'll definitely keep in touch and, and we'll have to have you back to talk about that one. Yeah. Can't wait. So did the three men successfully escape and manage to evade capture? Did they, in fact, make it down to South America, where they lived out their lives as free men? As of today, it remains a mystery. We have only the few pieces of evidence recovered and no bodies. Alcatraz closed down on March 21st of 1963, perhaps cementing John Anglin, his brother Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris as the only prisoners ever to successfully escape. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and telling a friend to check us out. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any new content. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery. And until then, I'm your host, John Williamson, and you've been listening to From the Void.